Hey, what up? This is Shags from ShagsAndStuff.com, and we are in the series finale of our study through the Old Testament book of Esther, and today's blog post is titled, The Fight of Her Life and the Party of a Lifetime. So the closing chapters of the book of Esther really bring to mind um, epic biblical tales of God subverting Israel's enemies in battle. Like the events of chapter 9 and 10, which we're going to be looking at in this blog series, they, they vividly bring to mind a, a, relatively, a relatively recent event in 1967 where God performed what can only be described as a miracle on the battlefield on behalf of Israel. Like, like this historic event really sounds like a, like a page taken right out of the Old Testament. I speak here of the Six-Day War between Israel and the combined military might of several Arab nations that took place on June 5th to 10th, 1967. So in that event, an alliance of Arab nations that included Egypt and Syria and Lebanon, Iraq and Jordan, all of which were supported by uh, smaller places like Kuwait and Libya and Morocco, Algeria, Saudi Arabia, Sudan and Tunisia, and all of these uh, nations really were hell-bent on destroying Israel and had in fact carried out several attacks against this tiny nation, as well as instituting an effective blockade of the port city of Elat in southern Israel. And from Israel's standpoint, the threat of military invasion loomed large on the horizon and frankly it looked like it was going to be the end of Israel, like she was outnumbered and outgunned. However, when you are the apple of God's eyes, things don't always appear as they seem, especially in battle. You see, the word astounding doesn't even begin to describe what happens next. You see, in response to the military mobilization of these Arab nations surrounding her, in the early hours of June 5th, Israel, Israel's air force launched a preemptive air assault that just completely destroyed somewhere around 90% of Egypt and Syria's air force. In fact, I think it was the original Operation Shock and Awe, because no one saw this coming, especially not the Arab nations gathered preparing to attack her. Then Israel followed that up on June 7th when uh, Israeli military also drove out Jordanian ground forces out of East Jerusalem and, and out of most of the West Bank, thereby reclaiming the holy, holy city of Jerusalem. I mean, talk about a reversal of destiny. Like, like within three days, the Israelis had achieved an overwhelming, almost unbelievable victory over the surrounding Arab nations that had vowed to exterminate her. And from an observer watching this, it would seem as if a sovereign God were fighting on her behalf. Now, that actually may sound familiar because, and it, it should sound familiar because we've seen this time and time again in, in biblical history where God fights on behalf of Israel, even though her enemies are greater than her. And in fact, this will happen again in our future at the battle of Armageddon when Jesus Christ himself returns. But the reason why this sounds familiar to us is because it's exactly what happens in the final chapters of this book of Esther. And so today, in this final blog post of this series through this Old Testament book, I'm going to give you more of a running commentary on the final unfolding events. And I'm going to do two things. I'm going to highlight two fight plans, right, fight plans that will help you learn how to fight for what's rightfully yours. And then I'll give you two party ideas that will help you throw a party of a lifetime because, frankly, that's what you do when you win a fight. You, you party. So so today's title, today's blog post is titled The Fight of Our Life and the Party of a Lifetime. And it'll make sense as we 
go along. Now, if you are interested in a recap of where we've been thus far, uh, I invite you to check out the first eight episodes of this blog series or on the website or 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 through the podcast. But assuming that you know the background story, because it's a lot to go over here, um, assuming you know the background that has led to this chapter, all you need to know here as we launch into chapter nine is that today in chapter nine is D-Day, right? It is the 13th day of the 12th month, and there will be plenty of bloodshed today. And today is the day when, when Haman's army, who he prepped way, way back when, um, will finally deal with the Jewish problem, right? This is a term that Hitler himself coined when they were trying to get rid of the Jews in Germany. Now, incidentally, Haman himself has actually already been executed somewhere around nine months earlier, but the edict to annihilate the Jews still remains because Persian law, once written, is irrevocable. So there's obviously some anti-Semitic retribution fueling this Persian killing squad that's about killing squad that's looking to kill the Jews. And the bloody event that is supposed to unfold on this day is actually eerily similar to the liquidation of the Warsaw Ghetto in Germany that took place on April 19, 1943, when German soldiers started killing and deporting Jews to concentration camps. Now, here's, here's, some, here's some more irony for you. This bloodshed and enmity between these two groups really hasn't changed even after a few thousand years. Like the Persians, right, in Xerxes' time, who are the Iranians today, are frankly still threatening and calling for the destruction of the Jews of Israel. So clearly, we start to get the sense that this is just beyond racial, ethnic hatred. I mean, it is, it is, it is spiritual attack. It's, it's Satan-led, an, an, an unseen spiritual battle in heavenly realms with principalities and powers warring against God's people. Well, fortunately, however, this onslaught of the Jews, um, or, or this attack against the Jews, I'm sorry, though it's Satan-inspired, is not going to go as planned. And the key phrase to keep in mind here is really at the latter, ver latter part of verse 1, where it says, On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, and here it is, but now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. So let me give you fight plan number one, and it's this. Always have a go plan. Always have a go plan. Back to the story, and I'll explain that in a second, but um, the plan to destroy the Jews will not go as planned because unlike the failed uprisings of the Jewish fighting resistance in Warsaw in 1942 Germany, uh, the Jews in Persia, in Esther's account, have had plenty of time to prepare their own army to fight back. In other words, the Jews had a go plan that was ready to, well, go, right? Furthermore, due to Mordecai's sudden ascension and rise to political power and influence that we read of in chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, um, many high-ranking Persian officials and possibly even military are actually siding with the Jews. There's also this little tidbit in verse 2 where it says that a sudden fear had fallen on all the other na nationalities concerning the Jews. And, and this may very well have to do with Mordecai's rising influence and power. Or it could be that a, it could be a supernatural act of God where the fear of the Lord has fallen on the enemy army, enemy army so that they were already defeated before the Jews even lifted a sword. Whatever the case may be, this day is going to unfold like that moment when 
let's say, robbers armed with knives storm a house at night only to find a trained unit of fully armed commandos waiting with guns pointed directly at their forehead, right? That's how this chapter is going to play out. I know it's bloody, but it's what happened because by the end of this day, in chapter 1, blood has indeed been spilled all over the 127 provinces of Persia, but not Jewish blood. You see, when the bodies were tallied at the end of this first day, that's the 13th, um, the account tells us in chapter 1 that 500 of Haman's mercenaries were found dead. And included in that number, by the way, were the 10 sons of Haman who were also killed and impaled publicly because they might have posed a future threat to the Jews. And their public impaling really signaled to all the other nations that the Jews were not to be trifled with. Now, let's be clear about the killing that takes place uh, in chapter 9, the killing that Jews execute. Um, this isn't just wanton murder, right? This is this was strictly self-defense on the Jewish people's part. Like, though, though their enemies, according to Haman's edict, though their enemies could attack any Jew they wanted, Mordecai's edict only allowed the Jews to attack those who attacked them, those who were seeking their destruction. In fact, verse 2 reiterates as much when it says, The Jews assembled in their cities in all the provinces of, the, of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. And further proof of the just nature of their war is found in verse 10 and verse 15 and 16, where it says the Jews did not lay hands on the plunder of the Persians that they killed. So, so this is basically telling us that the Jews killing these 500 men wasn't about hatred. It wasn't, it wasn't genocide, nor was it about acquiring wealth. It was about protection and preservation of life. With all of that said, I think it's important to bring us back again to that point, which is this, that the Jews were ready to go at a moment's notice when the moment called for action, right? After prepping for nine months for this day, man, they had a go plan and they were ready to go when it mattered. And so how about, how about you? Think about your life. Like, like, are you ready to go if God were to call your number? And I'm not talking about death, or I'm talking about if God, if the things you've been trusting God for were to suddenly show up on your front steps, like, how ready are you to actually get moving on it? It's a question you'll hear me ask if you've ever approached me to pray for you about a need in your life you're trusting God for. I'm generally going to ask you, well, what have you done to get ready for this? What have you done to get yourself ready for this? Like, believe it or not, readying yourself to go on whatever it is you're trusting God to do in your life is actually an act of faith. Like, preparing yourself so that you're ready is an act of faith. And if there's one thing we know about God, it's that He is drawn to faith. So get moving, get ready, whatever it is you're trusting God for, what is it on your part you could start doing to get yourself ready to receive it from God? And that's the fight plan number one we learned. Fight plan number two is this. Be ready. Always be ready, not only to have a goal plan, but be ready to fight for what is rightfully yours. Emphasis on the word fight there, right? So back to Esther. I think it's interesting that Esther actually requests an additional day for her people to defend themselves before the king because apparently the 13th wasn't enough time to apprehend those who posed a threat to the Jews. You see, we read in verse 5 to 10 that she actually needed to secure official permission from the king for her people to protect themselves for another 24 hours to send a clear message. And by the way, it's at this point that she actually requests also that the ten sons of Haman be publicly impaled. And I think it's a clever way of Esther sending a very strong public message that this kind of action will happen to whoever opposes the queen's people. 
Well, as a result of this extra day, so not only on the 13th, but on the 14th, verse 14 and 15 tells us that on the 14th, the Jewish army also struck down 300 additional men, right? And so when all was said and done, the Bible tells us that 75,000 enemy soldiers were killed in all 127 provinces in Persia. Now, I know this sounds like a lot of bloodshed, and it is, right? But, but the fact is, listen, there is a time to fight and there's a time for war. It's not enough to just have a nice goal plan. You, you need to put it to work for you. The reality is this, that every great idea you have or initiative that you try to implement will be faced with some level of opposition because that's, that's, that's just kind of what haters do, right? There will always be people who think your idea won't work and, and there will be some people who will actually actively try to stifle your efforts. So in those inevitable moments, you will need to decide if your God-given dreams, your God-given plans are worth fighting for and even worth taking a few punches for or in some cases throwing a few punches of your own. And work with me here. I'm not talking about literally getting in the fight unless it calls for it. But I'm talking about going after what it is that God's rightfully entrusted and given to you. Esther, when you go back to her story, had most of what she wanted on the 13th, right? They killed a lot of people who were trying to kill him. But, but Esther knew that the victory that God had already begun to grant Jews wasn't fully theirs yet. And so making a request to the king to extend the battle one more day, it was a risky move, but frankly for Esther, it was, it was worth it because it meant the threat of death would no longer loom over her people. And so as you press forward on whatever it is you're trusting God for, men, be tenacious about God's plans, about the things that God has planted in your heart. You, you got to be tenacious. You got to be persistent about it. You got to press on in spite of the pain and opposition that may face you. And you press, you keep going until you begin to see some form of semblance of the vision that you originally began with. And that's what I mean when I say the fight for what, what's rightfully yours. And this is, in fact, what the Jews do up until the end of the 14th, when it says in verse 18 to 19, that, and then on the 15th day, all the Jews rested and they made it a day of feasting and joy. That is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observed the 14th month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting, a day of giving gifts and presents to each other. And so at this point in the story, moving on from chapter 9 to chapter 10, uh, the narrative actually changes from warfare to celebration because, frankly, that's what you do when you win a battle. You celebrate. And, and it actually goes on to recount all the events of the books. And so these next two points or two lessons will really move from fight plan to party plan. So, so let me give you the first one. Here it is. Party plan number one. Don't celebrate the war. Celebrate the victory. You know, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 23, God institutes seven national holidays for the Jews. Now, two other national holidays that the Jews have, however, are a result of historical events instituted by men. So there's Hanukkah, which is a version of Christmas, and then there's, there's Purim. And Purim is sort of, think, 4th of July meets Christmas, right? So Purim actually originated in these last two chapters of the book of Esther, right? It's a celebration of remembrance of how God outwitted the enemy and delivered the Jews from Haman's wicked scheme. But it's also a day of feasting, dash, dancing, and exchanging of gifts, according to verse 22 of the book of Esther. Now, I want you to know what they're celebrating. The Jews are not celebrating the bloodshed or the number of lives that were taken in battle 
Rather, they are rejoicing and remembering the time when the Jews, when they got relief from their enemies, and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and mourning into a day of celebration. And so the point here is quite simple and straightforward, and it's this. When God moves dramatically in your life, it calls for a celebration, right? Like, like we often tend to kind of forget what God does and run to the next thing. No, we, we got to celebrate what God has done. Like when God moves in such a way that things are irreversibly changed for the better in your life or your church or your community, man, it calls for celebration and frankly, the exchanging of gifts to celebrate God. And so as you're thinking about this, start thinking about what is it that God has done? Like, like, like the gift giving or gift exchanging may be something you do with other people who've experienced the same thing, who, who also give you gifts in return. Or if you're feeling especially generous, your gift giving can actually go to someone who can do nothing in return or is in no position to do anything in return for you. Bless a complete stranger. Give, give to others out of the gratitude of your heart, or I'm sorry, giving to others out of the gratitude of your heart is a way of thanking God and celebrating what he's done for you, in you, or through you. And this, in fact, brings me to the last note. And it's this, party plan number two. So party plan number one was don't celebrate the war, celebrate the victory. Party plan number two is this, Purim calls for a party. And I mean that seriously. Like, like the instruction here is throw a party. Listen, this may come as a shocker to some of you, but God digs a good party. In fact, the rest of the story in Esther chapter 9 and 10 is basically Esther and Mordecai making the Purim party an official national celebration. Concerning parties, consider the fact that the Bible not only describes our eternal state in heaven as an ongoing period of joy and festivity, but the angels themselves actually burst in a spontaneous celebration every time one person puts their faith in Christ. You want to know what's even more incredible than that? It's the fact that God is actually planning to host the most lavish, the most extravagant party ever thrown in our future. Revelation chapter 19 verse 9 describes that day, that event, as the marriage supper of the Lamb. And you want to know what the best part is? God is making this party an open invite. Like he wants his house full and an invitation has been extended out to you and I through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we have two responses or two options of how we can respond to God inviting us to his party. One, you can turn down the invite by, and you do so when you continue to pursue your own plans and ambitions for your life apart from faith in Christ, thereby crossing your name off the list. Or you can accept this invitation by confessing with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, thereby gaining entrance into God's party. Now, that, that's, that's basically the salvation story, super, super uh, summed up right there. But, but for those of you who do choose or have chosen to accept God's invitation and truly believe that God wants his house to be full, here's a simple follow-up task, and, he, and here's the connection to the Purim story in Esther chapter 9 and 10. If it's within your means in the coming weeks or coming months, throw an awesome, fun party at your place. Why? Because God's been good to you. Because that's what you do when God blesses and works in your life. You celebrate. Like, like think of over the last few months of your life. Like, what are some wins? What are some wins that God's giving you, some victories that God's giving you? Have you taken the time out to thank him beyond just a casual thank you, God, in prayer? Like, like how about truly celebrating what God has done with the party and inviting others? Remember, God digs a good party. So go ahead. As we wrap up this blog series through the book of Esther, 
plan a party, keep it clean and free of content that would cause anyone to fall into sin, invite your friends to it, but, but I'd even stretch you this far, and I would go, be very intentional about inviting people in your wider social circles who usually don't get invited to parties, sort of like giving gifts to people who are not in a financial position to do anything in return. Like, invite people to your party, not just your friends, but invite people who don't get invited. Let them experience what it feels like to be grateful to God, as we see Esther, Mordecai, and all the Jews doing in this last chapter. Believe it or not, a great party like that may actually speak louder about your faith in Christ than any street preaching ministry you may carry out. So, so the party plan, after, after experiencing victory in battle, one, the first party plan is don't celebrate the war, celebrate the victory, but also throw an actual party and invite people to come celebrate what God has done. And so we've arrived at the end of our blog series through Esther. I hope this was spiritually meaningful as it was for me. Um, I, I hope it was a blessing to you. Um, I certainly invite you to join me as we start the next um, blog series. And I'll tell you more about that next week. I'm looking forward to it. But um, I invite you to join me for that. In the meantime, please stop by my blog, www.shegsandstuff.com. That's S-H-E-G-Z and S-T-U-F-F dot com, Stuff dot com. I think I spelled that right. But shegsandstuff.com to check out more about my blog. Thanks so much for listening. God bless you.